You've tuned into the voice of the narrated Puritan, a podcast on the subject of Christian experience and assurance of salvation. Archibald Alexander says in this next chapter called Imperfect Sanctification in the Spiritual Warfare, it may be difficult to account for the fact that when the power of God was as sufficient to make the sinner perfect in the new creation as to implant the principle of spiritual life, he should have left the work imperfect, and that this imperfection, according to our views of Scripture and of the fact is made known by experience, should continue through the whole period of human life to whatever extent it may be protracted. Some indeed seem to suppose that the remainders of sin in believers are seated in the body, and therefore as long as this sinful body continues, this inbred corruption will manifest itself more or less. This opinion seems to have been imbibed at a very early period of the history of the church, and was probably derived from the Platonic philosophy which considers matter to be the origin of evil. From this view of the seat of indwelling sin, men in all ages who entertained it have been led to lay great stress on fasting and other bodily austerities by which the body was enfeebled and emaciated. Now, if you look at the Christian directory by Richard Baxter, maybe I should just read that, but there's no way that Baxter here is not going to be termed a legalist. Unless, as we discussed before, when we're talking about sanctification and perseverance in the faith, that these means of grace are a means to an end. They are not cause and effect. He has not posited that we are to be saved by these things, but we are to keep down, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9, the body, and bring it into subjection. So Richard Baxter says directions against inward, filthy lusts. Because with most, the temperature of the body has a great hand in this, and your first care must be about the body, to reduce it to a temper less inclined to lust. And here the chief remedy is fasting and much abstinence. And this may be the better born, because for the most part, it is person so strong as to be able to endure it that are under this temptation. If your temptation, and he means to sexual sin, be not strong, the less abstinence from eat and drink may serve the turn, for I would prescribe you no stronger medicine than is needful to cure your disease. But if it be violent, or to use the words of Paul the Apostle, if it is burning within you, 1 Corinthians 7, but if it be violent and Lesser means will not prevail. It is better your bodies be somewhat weakened and your souls corrupted and undone. Therefore, in this case, eat no breakfast nor suppers but one meal a day unless a bit or two of bread and a sup of two of water in the morning and yet not too full of dinner and nothing at night. Drink no wine or strong drink but water if the stomach can bear it without sickness and usually in such hot bodies is it healthfuller than beer. Eat no hot spices or stronger heating or windy meats. Eat lettuce and such cooling herbs, and often bathe in cold water, but the medical physician should be advised with that this may be safely done. If you think this course is too dear a cure, and you'd rather cherish your flesh, 
and give in to your lusts, you're not the person I'm now directing, for I speak to such only as are willing to be cured, and to use the necessary means that they may be cured. If you're not brought to this, your conscience had need better awakening. I'm sure Christ saith that when the bridegroom was taken from them, his disciples should fast. And even painful Paul was in fasting often, and kept under his body and brought it into subjection, lest by any means, when he had preached others, himself should be a castaway. End quote, Richard Baxter. Well, you could see in our day what an outcry there would be against such counsels. But there is certainly a link, for example, between strong drink and sins against the seventh commandment. But let me go on. I'm going to be reading again from Thoughts on Religious Experience, and then we'll get into the Christian warfare in more detail. Quote, The body, though infected with the pollution of sin, through its connection with the soul, is not and cannot be the source of iniquity. Mere matter, however curiously organized and animated, is apart from the soul no moral agent and therefore not susceptible of moral qualities. Sin must have its origin and seat in the free rational soul, and the appetites and passions which have their seat in the body partake of the nature of sin by their excess and irregularity, and by their cravings often influence the will to choose that which is not good, or is not the best. Still, however, the body is a great clog to the soul, and the appetites and passions which are seated in the body, being very urgent in their cravings for gratification, greatly disturb the exercise of piety. And sometimes they prevail against the higher principles which by grace have been implanted. As the body is also subject to various diseases, these, on account of the close connection between the soul and body, mightily affect the mind, and often create a great hindrance to devotion in the exercises of piety. Where two opposite principles exist in the same soul, there must be a perpetual conflict between them until the weaker dies. But as the old man, though crucified, never becomes extinct in this life, this warfare between the flesh and the spirit never ceases until death. As these opposite moral principles operate through the same natural faculties and affections, it is a matter of course that as the one gains strength, the other must be proportionably weakened. And experience teaches that the most effectual way to subdue the power of sin is to cherish and exercise the principle of holiness. But if the love of God grows cold, or declines in vigor, then the motions of sin become more lively, and the stirring of inbred corruption is sensibly experienced. Just sin in the same proportion will the principle of evil be diminished as the principle of grace is strengthened. Every victory over any particular lust weakens its power, and by a steady growth in grace such advantage is obtained over inbred sin that the advanced Christian maintains a mastery over it, and is not subject to those violent struggles which were undergone when this warfare began. Since our subject here is imperfect sanctification and growing in grace. I want to read a part of a question that is in Samuel Pike in Samuel Hayward's Cases of Conscience, 1755, Case 18. How may a Christian know that he is growing in grace? It is a question of some peculiar weight that I have before me. The resolution of it has a tendency to remove the Christian's fears, help him 
in examining his soul, and stir him up to a holy diligence and watchfulness in his spiritual course, that he may not be trifling and slothful, but press on towards a mark, and so make some progress on his way to Zion. Here I will, one, make a few observations that may be necessary to clear this important point. And number two, mention a few instances in which it will appear that the Christian, notwithstanding all the opposition he meets with, really grows in grace. Growth in grace is generally imperceptible to the Christian himself. For the most part, it is of a very gradual nature. It is like a plant which grows insensibly, or like a babe which becomes stronger and taller, till at length he has all the proportions of a man, and yet you don't see how this is done. In time you find an alteration, but you cannot perceive the steps by which he approaches nearer and nearer to manhood. So it is with a Christian. First, he is a babe, being weak in knowledge and grace. Then he is a young man, and after that he is a father. These speak of great improvement, and yet in general this is so gradual that the Christian is insensible of it. He is at first a plan, but afterwards he may be compared to a tree. And so he goes on oftentimes till at length he becomes a tall cedar in Lebanon. And yet the steps by which he ascends to this height and stature are chiefly imperceptible. Sometimes growth and grace is quicker and more visible. God does great work in a little time. Some Christians make great improvements and soon come to a state of manhood. They ripen a pace for a better world and make great advances in the divine life. When God is like a dew to their souls, they revive as a corn, grow as a vine, shoot forth their branches and make a green and flourishing appearance. When the Son of Righteousness arises upon them with healing under his wings, they go out and grow fat like calves at the stall. Malachi 4 verse 2 like the sun in its return from the winter solstice nourishes frozen nature by its warmth and makes it look green and beautiful. So when the sun of righteousness, after a long time of withdrawal, comes to shine again upon the soul, he feels the warmth of his reviving beams and finds a glorious and sudden alteration. His inlike calves fatten in the stall, which are fit for slaughter, and therefore make much quicker improvements than those that are in the open field. The Christian, like them, grows fat and makes very visible advances in holiness. When God fills the pull of ordinances with his heavenly reign, we are sensible of it. Feel the refreshment and go from strength to strength. On the whole, we may have made some progress in the Christian life, even for the present. We may appear to be going backward or declining in grace. Some corruptions may for the present harass our souls and have led us aside. By some neglect or other, we may have grieved the Holy Spirit, and he may have left us for a time, and so we may appear to be in a declining and withering condition. Though on the whole we may have made some progress in grace and have gotten some cubits added to our spiritual stature since we gave ourselves to Christ. A child may have some indisposition which may prevent his growth for a time, Yet he may have gotten much strength when compared with what he was at first. David lay asleep for some time and gave no evidence as then of any growth and grace. He doubtless he made advances in conformity to God, though now a corruption leads him into captivity. For 
From all this, then, we learn that we must not compare ourselves with yesterday if we would know whether we have any more steps on our way to heaven. It might be much better with us yesterday than today, as to the frame of our souls, and yet, in general, we may have gained some ground. If we would know our growth, we must look back to the time when we first gave ourselves to the Redeemer, if we can remember it and compare ourselves now with ourselves then. End quote. Pike and Hayward's Cases of Conscience On the same subject of growth and grace in Christians, now this next paragraph by Archibald Alexander is very enlightening. He says, quote, Young Christians, however, are often greatly deceived by the appearance of the death of sin, when it only sleeps or deceitfully hides itself waiting for a more favorable opportunity to exert itself again. When such a one experiences in some favored moment the love of God shed abroad in his heart, sin appears to be dead, and those lusts which warred against the soul to be extinguished. But when these lively feelings have passed away and carnal objects begin again to entice, a latent principle of iniquity shows itself. And often that Christian who had fondly hoped that the enemy was slain and the victory won, and in consequence ceased to watch and pray, is suddenly assailed and overcome by the deceitfulness of sin. Christians are more injured in this warfare by the insidious and secret influence of their enemies lulling them into the sleep of carnal security than by all their open and violent assaults. No duty is more necessary in maintaining this conflict and watchfulness. Unceasing vigilance is indispensable. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Lawful pursuits are more frequently a snare than those which are manifestly sinful. It is a duty to provide things honest in the sight of all men. But while this object is industriously pursued, the love of the world gradually gains ground. The possession of wealth is viewed as important. Eternal things are out of view now. Or, when they are viewed, they are seen at a great distance, and the impression of them upon our minds is faint. Worldly entanglements and embarrassments are experienced. The spiritual life is weakened, a sickly state commences, and a sad declension ensues. Alas for the Christian now, where is the burning zeal with which he commenced his course? Where now are the comforts of religion, with which he was so entirely satisfied that the world was viewed as an empty bauble? Where now is his spirit of prayer which made this duty his delight? Where is his love of the Bible which drew him aside often from worldly business to peruse its sacred instructions? Oh, what a change! Listener, maybe it's perhaps your own case. You are the man who have thus fallen and left your first love. Repent therefore and do the first works lest some heavy judgment fall upon you. God holds a rod for his own children, and when the warnings and exhortations of the word and the secret whispers of the Spirit are neglected, some painful providence is sent. Some calamity, which has so much natural connection, in other words, when these things are brought into your life, when you're examining what's happening, there's such a natural connection that you cannot mistake it. God wants your attention. There's so much natural connection with the sin is to indicate that it is intended as a chastisement for it. These strokes are often very cutting and severe, but they must be so, 
in order for them to be useful or effectual. No chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, because Archibald Alexander was talking about legitimate things that we need to do, legitimate things that need to be employed in order to provide for our families, but it's such a subtle thing that we excuse spiritual mindedness by our duty towards the things that we must keep our attention on. And John Owen says, and the grace and duty being spiritually minded about such pretenses. Where are you going so fast, my friend? What well, means this rising up from bed so early and going to bed late, eating the bread of carefulness? Why this diligence? Why these contrivances? Why these savings and hoardings of riches and wealth? To what end is all this care and counsel? Alas, one says, it is to get that which is enough in and of this world for me and my children, to prefer them, to raise an estate for them, which if not so great as others may yet be a competency to give them some satisfaction in their lives and some reputation in the world. Fair pretenses. Neither shall I ever discourage any from the exercise of industry in their lawful callings, but yet... I know that with many this is but a pretense and a covering for a shameful engagement of their affections to this world. Therefore, in all these things, be persuaded sometimes to have an eye to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Behold how he is set before us in the gospel, poor, despised, reproached, persecuted, nailed to the cross, and all by this world. Whatever be your designs and aims, let his cross continually interpose between your affections in this world. If you are believers, your hopes are within a few days to be with him forevermore. To him you must give an account of yourselves and what you have done in this world. Will it be acceptable with him to declare what you have saved of this world? What you have gained? What you have preserved and embraced yourselves in? And what you have left behind you? End quote. John Owen, the grace and duty of being spiritually minded. Now we will move on to the subject of the Christian warfare, our battle with the wiles of the devil, our battle with Apollyon. And we discussed this with a few quotes in the last podcast, but let's dig into this deeper. Alexander says, in a former chapter I mentioned the different views of different denominations of Christians respecting the nature of the soul's exercises in conversion. But this difference is far more considerable as it relates to the spiritual conflict and sanctification. It is far from the wish of the writer to give offense to any body of Christians, much less to provoke controversy. This isn't the proper field for controversy. In the midst of this militant state, there ought to be one peaceful ground where all true followers of Jesus might sit down together and compare their experiences of the loving kindness and faithful dealings of their Lord and Master. But surely it ought not to be offensive to any body of Christians simply to state what their views are in regard to experimental religion and how far they agree or differ from those of other Christians. If there be mistakes or erroneous views on any side, they should be considered and corrected, and the writer of these essays will be thankful to anyone who will kindly point out any mistakes in regard to matters of fact into which we may happen to fall. The Christian is a soldier, 
And he must expect to encounter enemies and to engage in many a sub-fear conflict. Now the young convert, the new converted convert, may well be likened to a raw recruit just enlisted in the army. He feels joyous and strong, full of hope and full of courage. When the veteran Christian warns him of coming dangers and formidable enemies and endeavors to impress on his mind a sense of his weakness and helplessness without divine aid, he doesn't understand what he says. He doesn't apprehend any dangers or enemies which he is not ready to face. And he is ready to think that the aged disciples, those who have been in the way for a while, the aged Christians with whom he converses, have been deficient in courage and skill, or they have met with obstacles which are now removed out of the way. And I must say on Alexander's words, that's really the plague in our day. If I go back to read something that is 200, 300 years old, from the days of the Puritans, even in my own church that I attend here, people are like to cry legalism. It is such a foreign concept to them. And they have become desensitized because they don't read these things. And I'm speaking from personal experience. We were going to start a, quote, book nook, a little book store here. And we put out these questionnaires. And one of the questions is, are you a reader? And a number of people wrote, no. And so they, their understanding of Christianity is what they see of Christians around them and comparing themselves with themselves. They are not wise. They have been desensitized. And I know I am liable to this as well. That's why I continually read John Owen. That's why I continually examine myself by the best of those who have fought the fight who have finished their course, who have finished their race, who have put down in writing things to help me in the snares that await me. But there is no real desire to read. I was actually sitting down with a pastor yesterday, and we were talking about the things. In the judgment of charity, everything was said to explain why Christians would write down, I am not a reader. Maybe they listen to podcasts. Maybe they get their sermons from the internet. Maybe they have other means of grace. And I say with John Owen, these are all fair pretenses, but I fear that there may be an error in the foundation. But let me go on. The young convert, who is full of zeal, probably in untempered zeal, he views the contests of which the older Christians speak as the young soldier does a field of the battle at a distance, while he is enjoying his bounty money and marches about with a conscious exultation on account of his military insignia and animated with martial music. The young Christian is commonly treated by his lord with peculiar tenderness. He is like a babe dandled on the knee and exposed to no hardships. Not having a tough time right now. That's coming later. And of course, since God's ways are so very various, with some this isn't the case, though often it is. So the young Christian is much like a babe dandled on the knee and exposed to no hardships. His spiritual frames are lively and often joyous, and he lives too much upon them. His love to the Savior and to the saints is fresh and fervent, and his religious ill, though not well regulated by knowledge, 
is ardent. He often puts older disciples to the blush by the warmth of his affections and his alacrity in the service of the Redeemer. And it is well if he does not sometimes indulge a censorious spirit in judging those who have been long exercised in the spiritual life. This is indeed the season of his first love, which began to flow in the day of his espousals, and though occasionally dark clouds intercept his views, these are soon forgotten when the clear sunshine breaks forth to cheer him on his way. During this period he delights in social exercises, especially in communion with those of his own age, and in prayer, and in praise, and spiritual conversation. His heart is lifted up to heaven, and he longs for the time when he may join the songs of the upper temple. But before long, the scene changes. Gradually, his glow of fervent affections to God subsides. They decline. They decrease. His worldly pursuits, even the most lawful and necessary, steal away the heart, and various perplexing entanglements beset the inexperienced traveler. He begins to see that there were many things faulty in his early course. He blames his own weakness or enthusiasm, and in avoiding one extreme, he easily falls into the opposite to which human nature has a strong bias to do. He enters into more conversation with the world, with the unconverted, with the enemies of religion around him, we might say. And, of course, he imbibes insensibly some portion of their spirit. This always has a deadening effect on his religious feelings, and his devotions are less fervent and less punctual, and far more interrupted with vain, wandering thoughts than before. And he is apt to fall into a hasty or formal attendance on the daily duties of the closet, and a little manner will sometimes lead him to neglect these precious seasons of grace. A strange forgetfulness of the presence of God and of his accountableness for his every thought, every word and action, it seizes upon his conscience. Close self-examination becomes painful, and when it is attempted, is unsuccessful. New evils begin to appear springing up in the heart. The imagination before he is aware is filled with sensual imagery, which affording carnal pleasure the train of the thoughts is with difficulty changed. A lack of prompt resolution is often the occasion of much guilt and much unhappiness. Pride is sure to lift its head when God is out of view. And it is amazing, marvelous, or full of wonder how this in kindred evils will get possession and grow so as to be visible to others while the person himself is not aware of the disease. Anger, impatience, fretfulness, envy, undue indulgence of the appetites, his love of riches, fondness for dress and showiness, the love of ease, Aversion to spiritual duties with numerous similar and nameless evils are now bred in the heart and come forth to annoy and retard the Christian in his spiritual courts. His spiritual pride makes him unwilling to open his ear to friendly and fraternal reproof. Such words or exhortations fall heavily on him and wound his morbid sensibility, so that a conflict takes place between a sense of his duty and his unmortified pride. He inwardly feels that the rebuke of a brother is just, and should be improved to the amendment of the evil pointed out. But spiritual pride cannot brook the thought of being exposed and humbled, and so he tries to find something in the manner or circumstances which can be censored, or suspicion will ascribe it to a bad motive. In other words, he is suspicious of the motive that the brother, brothers, or pastor, or whoever brought this exhortation to his mind because they 
No, he's probably in a state of spiritual declension. If in a spiritual conflict his pride should gain the victory, alas, how much sin follows in its train. Resentment toward a kind brother, hypocrisy in concealing the real dictates a conscience and approval of the inner man, and a neglect of all efforts, add improvement. So the person thus circumstances instinctively led to endeavor to persuade himself that he is done right. Still, however, the language of his better part, his inner conscience, in his heart of hearts, is that of self-condemnation. But he hushes it up and assumes an air of innocence and boldness, and thus the spirit is grieved. Who can describe the train of evils which are the result? On one defeat of this kind, the mind becomes dark and desolate. Communion with God is interrupted. And a course of backsliding commences, which sometimes goes on for years, and then the wanderer is not arrested and brought back without severe chastisement. In such cases, the judgments of God against his own strange children are fearful, and if any one doesn't experience them, who is thus in a state of declension, who is backsliding, if he doesn't experience a rod, he is saying, if he isn't chastised, it is because he is not one of God's children. For what son is he whom the father does not chasten, does not correct? Worldly prosperity has ever been found an unfavorable soil for the growth of piety. It blinds the mind to spiritual and eternal things, dries up the spirit of prayer, fosters pride and ambition, furnishes the appropriate food to covetousness, and leads to a sinful conformity to the spirit, the maxims, and the fashions of the world. Now, maybe a few have been enabled to pass through this ordeal without serious injury, and yet have come forth like the three children from Nebuchadnezzar's furnace without the smell of fire on their garments. But this could not have been unless the Son of Man had been with them. Such persons use all their health, influence, and wealth in promoting the kingdom of Christ. But generally, God in mercy refuses to give worldly prosperity to his children. He has chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith. That is, he has commonly chosen poverty as the safest condition for his children. His are an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. But the poor have their conflicts and temptations as well as the rich. They are continually tempted to discontent, to envy at the prosperity of the rich, and sometimes to use unlawful means to satisfy their craving wants. On account of the dangers of both these conditions, Agur prayed, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. But in whatever state providence has placed us, we should, in it, be content. Certainly when Christians make haste to be rich, they are not governed by the wisdom which comes from above. No wonder that they pierce themselves through with many sorrows and are often in danger of eternal perdition. If we sought wealth from no other motive but to use it for God's glory, it would do us no harm, for this principle would regulate the pursuit so that it would not be detrimental to the kingdom of God within us. To put a feather on the arrow and drive this home, I'm quoting from The Treatise of Temptation by John Owen. And nothing does the folly of the hearts of men show itself more openly in the days in which we live than in this cursed boldness. After so many warnings from God, 
And so many sad experiences every day under their eyes of running into and putting themselves upon temptations. Any society, any company, any condition of outward advantages without once weighing what their strength in the midst of it will be, or what the concern of their poor souls is, they think they are ready for. Though they go over the dead and slain that in those ways and past but even now fell down before them, yet they will go on without regard or trembling. It has historic gone out hundreds, thousands of professors within a few years. But let us consider ourselves, what our own weakness is, what temptations are, its power and efficacy, and what they lead to. For ourselves, we are weakness itself. We have no strength, no power to withstand. Confidence in any strength in us is one great part of our weakness. It was so in Peter. He that says he could do anything can do nothing as he should. And, which is worse, it is the worst kind of weakness that is in us a weakness from treachery, a weakness arising from that party which every temptation has in us. If a castle or a fort be never so strong, and well fortified, yet, if there is a treacherous party, that lives within, that resides within, that is ready to betray it on every opportunity, there is no preserving it from the enemy. There are traitors in our hearts, ready to take part, to close and side with every temptation, and to give up all to them. Yea, to solicit and bribe temptations to do their work is traitors inside an enemy. Do not flatter yourselves that you should hold out. There are secret lusts that lie lurking in your hearts, which perhaps do not stir at the present time. Yet, which as soon as any temptation befalls you, comes upon you, it will arise, tumultuate, cry, disquiet, seduce, and never give over until they are either killed or satisfied. He that promises himself that the frame of his heart will be the same under a temptation as it is before will be woefully mistaken. My dog that I should do the thing, says Haziel. You will be such a dog if ever you were king of Syria. Temptation from your interest will unman you. He that now abhorreth the thoughts of such and such a thing, if he once enters into temptation, will find his heart inflamed towards it, and all the reasonings to the contrary will be overborne and silenced. He will deride his former fears, cast out his scruples, and contemn the consideration that he lived on. Little did Peter think he should deny and forswear his master so soon as ever he was questioned, whether he knew him or not. It was no better when the hour of temptation came, all resolutions were forgotten, all love to Christ buried. The present temptation closing with his carnal fear carried all before it. End quote. Returning to Archibald Alexander who writes, quote, The enemies of the Christian have been commonly divided into three classes. The world the flesh, and the devil. But though these may be conceived of and spoken of separately, they resist the Christian soldier by their combined forces. The devil is the agent. The world furnishes the bait or the object of temptation. And the flesh, or our own corrupt nature, is the subject on which the temptation operates. Sometimes indeed, Satan injects his fiery darts, did or enkindled in hell, to frighten a timid soul and drive it to despair. But in this he often overshoots his mark, and drives a poor trembling soul near to his captain. His broad shield affords ample protection. And we are not to suppose that we are not often led astray by the enticements of sin within us without the aid of Satan. 
but we don't need to be afraid of charging too much evil upon this arch-adversary. He is ever on the alert, and he is exceedingly cautious in his approaches. Long experience has doubtless greatly increased his power and subtlety unless he should be more restrained than formerly. Some people make a mock of Satan's temptations as though they were the dreams of superstitious souls. Not so was Paul, or Peter, or John, or Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Zwingli. Not so any who understand the nature of the spiritual warfare. It is the degrading injury of many professing Christians that they are not constantly on the watch against the wiles of the devil. If you wish to know where he will be likely to meet you, I would say in your prayer closet, in your local church, on your bed, and in your daily conversation with men. A single thought which suddenly starts up in your mind will show that the enemy is near, and is suggesting such thoughts as without his agency never can be accounted for. Watch, therefore. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So let me close with the Treatise of Satan's Temptations by Richard Gilpin, written in the late 17th century. How does the devil approach us? By an earnestness of solicitation, when he urges the temptation over and over and gives you no rest, when he joins with this an importunity of begging and entreating with a repeated motion, when he draws together and advantageously orders a multitude of considerations to that end, and when in all this he holds down the mind and thoughts and keeps them under a contemplation of the object with the motions and reasons of it. So he provoked David, First Chronicles 21.1. And this kind of dealing occasioned the apostle to name his temptations and our resistance by the name of wrestlings, in which usually there appears many endeavors and often repeated to throw down the antagonist. Secondly, he irritates by a secret power and force that he has upon our fancies and passions. When men are said to be carried and led by Satan, it implies in the judgment of some more than importunity. And though he cannot force the spring of the will, yet he may considerably act upon it by pulling at the weights and plummets, that is, by moving and acting on our imaginations and affections. The motion being thus made, notwithstanding all of his importunity, often finds resistance, in which case he comes to the practice of a fourth rule, which is to draw away and entice a heart to consent. As it is expressed in James 1.14, every man is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed. I shall avoid here the variety of the apprehensions which some declare at large about the meaning of the words, but I'll satisfy myself with this, that the apostle points out those artifices of Satan by which he draws and allures the will of man to a compliance with his motions, which, when he effects in any degree, then may a man be said to be prevailed upon by the temptation. But then here's the wonder. How he should so far prevail against that reason and knowledge which God has placed in man to fence and guard him against a thing so absurd and unreasonable as every sin is. The solution of this not, K-N-O-T, we have in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, The God of this world blinds the eyes of men, draws a curtain over this knowledge, and raises a darkness upon them, which darkness, that we cannot fully apprehend, Yet that it is a very great and strange darkness may be discovered partly by considering the subject of it, man, a rational creature, in whom God has placed a conscience which is both a law and witness and judge. 
It cannot be supposed in easy manner to cloud or obliterate that law, to silence or pervert that witness, or to corrupt that judge, but it will rise higher in the wonder of it, if we consider this in a godly man, one that sets God before him, and is likely to have his fear in his heart. Such a man as David was, that in so plain a case, in so high a manner, for so long a time, with so little sense and apprehension of the evil and danger, Satan should so quickly prevail. It is an astonishment. Neither will be it less strange if we consider the issue and effect of this blindness. Some rise up against this law of conscience, arguing that false and erroneous, and making conclusions directly contrary, as Deuteronomy 29.19. I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of my heart. I have fellowship with him, though I walk in darkness, for John 1.6. We will not hearken to you, but will certainly do whatsoever thing goes out of our own mouth, in which case the conscience is quite overthrown. Some become hardened, and is to any application of their acts to this rule quite dead and senseless. Those are raised not up against the light, yet are they willingly ignorant, without any consideration of what they are doing. What shall we say of these things? Here is darkness to be felt. Egyptian darkness. That was from a treatise of Satan's temptations in three parts by Richard Gilpin. I believe that came out about 1677. Thank you for tuning in to the voice of the narrated podcast on Christian experience and assurance. Number 11.